Welcome to another episode of Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and crime. I'm Trish, your bartender for today. And I'm Sloan, your crime tender for today. So grab a cocktail and buckle up for the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot! Beep beep! Tonight's cocktail is a drink we are calling Blue Bells. It is tequila-based, and we are enjoying it in a martini glass, but you can definitely enjoy it over ice. It is two ounces of tequila or tequila to your preference. We definitely like a stronger drink. And then it is a half ounce of blue carousel and a half ounce of lime juice. You can do a margarita mix or a sour mix if you would like it to be a little sweeter but we are definitely more on the tart side we did put salt around our rim and then we shook our drink and strained it but like i said you can do it over ice so you could shake it and just pour it into your glass and then you enjoy if you would like to see this made in person you can check out our tiktok at tequila she wrote or you can check our instagram for a picture and instructions at, again, Tequila She Wrote. Today, I am your crime tender, and I am bringing you the very horrible case of Joseph Paul Franklin. This man was born and raised in Mobile, Alabama, which is why I chose this case, and which is also why Trish chose this case. So feel free to pipe in if I leave something out that you found that I did not find because... It already happened. We've only, we're on our second case and we already both double researched the same case. Anyways, Joseph Paul Franklin was born April 13th, 1950 in Mobile, Alabama as James Clayton Vaughn Jr. And yes, that's a different name as I introduced him as. We will get to that in a minute. He was born to James Clayton Vaughn Jr., I guess that's supposed to be senior senior. to, oh yes, I'm on the wrong line. So (laughs) born to senior and Helen Ravon, Ray Vaughn, R-A-U, I'm not sure. You will find out really quickly that I am uneducated. I'm actually very educated, but I don't know how to pronounce a lot of words. So Helen Ray Vaughn, his father was a World War II veteran and butcher. He was also an alcoholic drifter, so he would spend months away from his family, if not years, and then he would return just to abuse his wife and his children. Helen was described as a strict and abusive woman as well, and it was said that they were never really given care or food or really anything that they deserved as basic human beings. So as you can tell, this is not going to end up great. Crime Junkie 101 past abuse and animal abuse usually leads to serial killers that's a good rule of thumb so later he would name he would change his name to joseph paul franklin to reflect his admiration of benjamin franklin great great guy you know and joseph goeballs who was a nazi so clearly (laughs) so clearly we're dealing with a good guy here he would even go on to say shit like Three years, the same length of time Jesus was on his mission. 
And Franklin's mission? Not to save the world like Jesus. He wanted to start a race war. Does that sound like the Jesus that we are preached about? Not particularly. He later dropped out of high school after an accident left him impaired with his eyesight. He couldn't really see. And he was also exempted from the military at that point because he couldn't see. After high school, he married Bobby Lee Dorman in 1968. They were married for four months. And after 10 years, he finally married again to Anita Garden. They were married for almost a year. He beat both of his wives. Both of them. Which is something that he learned in childhood, so we can't really expect anything great of this guy, right? During his teens, he had come into contact with several organizations, such as the KKK, National Socialist White People's Party, and a lot of neo-Nazism, another word I won't pronounce correctly, groups. And he just became obsessed with the idea of white supremacy. His mother died in 1972, and around that time, he particularly became obsessed with these idea- ideologies. He moved to Atlanta and enlisted in the National States Right Policy Party, the National Rights Policy Party. I said it again, dead gummit. <laughs> and he also enrolled in the local KKK group. His problem with, with these groups was that they were too passive. He wanted more interaction with their uh, beliefs. He wanted to go out in the streets and harass interracial couples. He wanted to, you know, take care of the problem right away instead of building grander plans. He even at one point wrote to President Jimmy Carter threatening to kill him for his pro-civil rights views. The same year that he wrote to Jimmy Carter was the same year that he decided to change his name. Franklin would later state that he decided to start a race war after he read Mein Kampf. Yeah, Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf. And he was also inspired by uh, Charles Manson's Helter Skelter. I will say in my research, I found that uh, while talking about Mein Kampf, he said, I've never felt that way about a book I read. It was something weird about that book. Yes, it is a book written by Adolf Hitler. Like, Yes. <laughs> There was definitely something off about that book. (laughs) You should not be taking your ideologies from it. Franklin spent the years 1977 to 1980 wandering around the South and Midwest. He would use different names, change cars, change weapons, dyed his hair. He even dyed his hair to the point to where it almost fell out. (laughs) He had the ultimate purpose of getting rid of all Blacks, Asians, and Jewish people. That was his goal. In the meantime, he would rob banks just to get by. And now we're getting to his more serious crimes. On July 25th, 1977, he detonated a dynamite bomb outside of the Rockville, Maryland. Um, It was the home of Jewish lobbyist, attorney, And at the time, he was the executive director of American Israel Public Affairs Committee, Morris J. Amate. Him and his family managed to escape the house. Their house dog was killed in in the explosion. You're a terrible person. You killed a dog. I'm a dog person. So strike numero uno, buddy. Four days later in Chattanooga, 
he firebombed and destroyed the Beth Shalom Synagogue, though there were no casualties or injuries. And then on August 7th, Franklin shot a young interracial couple in Madison, Wisconsin. Almost two months later, he shot at people attending services at a St. Louis, Missouri synagogue. Gerald Gordon was killed while two others were left wounded. So, like, he's moving quickly. Once he got started, he was on a roll. He was on the run. He, I mean, he committed crimes for a decade span, I believe. No, three years span. Not a decade. A three-year span, and he did a lot of damage in that time. His, like, starting, like, weapon of choice was always, like, a rifle. And then... As he went on, I think he realized a rifle is not that easy to conceal. It's a little, it's a little bigger. So, yeah. So, then we move on to the next couple of years before he gets caught. And on February 2nd of 1978, Franklin shot and killed Johnny Brookshire. Wounded his white wife, so another interracial couple that he targeted. Wounded his white wife. A month later, on March 6th, he shot Hustler publisher Larry Flint and his lawyer Gene Reeves in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Flint was left crippled by the shooting. I believe he's still alive today. Yeah, he was paralyzed from the waist down. And like, yeah, yeah. Like, so I believe he's still alive. He's, I mean, he's getting up there. He was like 70, 80, I believe, whenever yeah. I was doing this research. But he's still alive, so he's still going. Um... And Franklin would later state he did he did that in retali- in retaliation of Hustler depicting interracial sex. Oh interracial goodness. sex. What I, a horrible thing. I never. Two people in love. How dare they? How dare they? This is the 1970s, so we can excuse people for not being human, but we should all learn and grow from this, I guess. Not I guess, to the learning and growing, but I guess we can excuse those horrible people. But on July 29th, once again, back in Chattanooga, he shot and killed William Brian Tatum, a black man, and injured his white girlfriend, Nancy Hilton, another interracial couple. On July 12th, 1979, in Georgia, he shot and killed the Taco Bell manager for being in close contact with a white woman. Harold McIver is the name I have. On August 18th, he shot and killed Raymond Taylor, a 28-year-old black man who was sitting inside a Falls Church in Virginia Burger... Um, wait, what? <laughs> a black man who was sitting inside a Falls Church, Virginia. He was in a Burger King. Falls Church is the city. Okay, I wrote that really horribly. Horribly. Sorry. On October 21st, he killed yet another interracial couple, Jesse Taylor and Marianne Brissett, in the parking lot of an Oklahoma shopping center. On December 5th, he shot to death a 15-year-old prostitute named Mercedes Lynn Master, with whom he briefly lived with. Once again, a great guy. Franklin would later say he did it because she had African-American customers. And that's why she deserved to die. Now we're moving on to 1980. This is the year that he finally gets captured. Thank goodness. While in Indianapolis, Franklin shot and killed two black males, Lawrence Reese and Leo Watkins, on the 12th and the 14th of January 1980. 
On May 3rd, he shot to death a young white hitchhiker, Rebecca Bergstrom, dumping her body near Otoma in central Wisconsin. On May 29th in Fort Wayne, Indiana, civil rights activist and Urban League president Vernon Jordan Jr. was shot and seriously wounded because he was in the company of a white woman. Franklin, Franklin at first denied being responsible for the attempt and was quitted, although he later confessed to this same event. He also admitted having planned to kill another civil rights activist before Jordan, Julian Bond. On June 8th, he shot and killed Daryl Lane and his cousin Dante Evans Brown in Cincinnati. On June 15th, he shot another interracial couple, Arthur Smothers and Kathleen McCullough in Johnston, Pennsylvania. Ten days after that, in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, he picked up two white hitchhikers, Nancy Santo Santamero and Vicki Durian, and brought them to a wooded area where he shot them both to death. Franklin would later say he decided to do it after one of the young girls said she had a black boyfriend. On August 20th, he shot two black joggers, Ted Fields and David Martin, as they were leaving a, Saint Lake, a Salt Lake City Park with two white women. One of the latter was also slightly wounded. So he really is creating a race war here. Yeah. I will say one of the things that I noted when I was, like, researching. So, the two boys he shot while in Cincinnati were literally children. Uh, Daryl was 14 and Dante was 13. And he did, he only shot them because he was on an overpass looking for an interracial couple. And he just happened to see these two little black boys and said, they'll do. That's disgusting. Yes. Um, the two hitchhikers, Nancy and Vicky, he originally wasn't even looked at for those crimes. He only later confessed to uh, an Ohio prosecutor while being convicted or like talked about of interest in a different, a totally different crime. And then he was like, oh yeah, I, I happened to, you know, just kill these two girls because one had a black boyfriend. And a different man originally was convicted of that crime and then eventually was released and pardoned from that. And then um, Joseph was convicted and charged instead. But it's just crazy. Like, he, as I got into this, he just, he was a talker. He liked to kind of almost boast about his crimes. I mean, to me, it clearly, to me, it's clear that he wants attention and he's getting it in his interviews. Like, his father was gone his whole life. His mother didn't really care for him. He's looking for somebody to care about him and his story. And he's creating a story to match that profile. But anyways, um... Where I was leaving off was after he shot the two black joggers on August 20th. Around this time, he left Utah and he re relocated to Nevada and then San Francisco. On September 25th, 1980, he was finally arrested in Florence, Kentucky, where he managed to escape from custody through a police department window. Sounds like Ted Bundy. <laughs> Sounds like Florence. 
Oh, I grew up around. Well, I didn't grow up around that area. I went to school around that area. <laughs> oh, they sound I like a. For the water tower. <laughs> they sound like a great group of people. He was eventually recaptured almost a month later in Lakeland, Florida, while paying a blood bank donation. In 1981, he was extradited back to Salt Lake City. He was convicted of both state and federal offenses related to the murders of Fields and Martin. He began to serve his life sentences in the U.S. Penitentiary of Marion, Illinois, where he was repeatedly stabbed by a group of African-American inmates. In 1986, after confessing several of his crimes, he was convicted of the murders. Oh, where did my notes just go? I just lost them. Um, in 1986, after confessing several of his crimes, he was convicted of the murders of Alphonse Manning Jr. and Tony Schwinn in Wisconsin and sentenced to another two consecutive life sentences. Later on in 1997, despite attempts from the defense to argue that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and despite an attempted escape by Franklin himself, he was sentenced to death for the murder of Gerald Gordon in Missouri. In the same year, he was sentenced to 40 years of imprisonment for the murder of Daryl Lane and Dante Brown. Then in 1998, he had another two concurrent life sentences for the murder of William Tatum. So up until this point, this man got away by committing crimes all over the country to where he was not being connected. And then once he got caught for his first crime, it all came tumbling down. Yes. And then... Um... From what, like, I understood, like, he would do these crimes and that, and then, like, basically move along, and he'd run out of money, and then he'd be like, oh, let's commit, like, a bank robbery to get some money, get his money, and leave again. So, like, that's how he moved so quickly. But, like, nobody was being like, oh, this person's killing people and committing these robberies. So, it's like, they never thought to connect them. Right. So, I personally, like, the next part of my research led me to the death penalty because he was, however you want to word it, in 2013, 2014, I believe. Um, I personally feel like a life sentence in jail is worth than, worse than being executed, but it is what it is. The justice system also fails us consistently and people are let out all the time. So sometimes the death penalty is kind of the answer. So the next part talks about how he was executed and I am not going to personally go into that, but I do want to talk about a couple of other things. Um, so before he was executed, he did make, he did not make a final statement, but like the last statement that he made a journalist was that uh, he considered black people, quote, just like us, unquote. And I want to believe that that was true to him, but I also feel like he was just saying it to say it because of everything that he had gone through in jail, prison, whatever, all of that stuff. I'm not really buying it that he had changed in my personal opinion, but I also believe that because he admitted to carefully planning every single crime that he committed down to what outfit he was going to wear to kill these people. What weapon was he going to take? Where was he going to go? Et cetera, et cetera. 
you don't do that kind of stuff without, you know, not thinking about it. You carefully thought all of that out. It was pre-planned. And you went through with it. Yeah. There was just too much thought. Um, I know one of the things that I found, like, I don't say interesting, but it was just like, I was just sitting there going, are you kidding me? When he was apprehended in Kentucky and finally, like, caught, the only reason he was caught was because a police officer just happened to notice a gun in the back of his car, and then they ran a background check and found an outstanding warrant, so they took him in for questioning. They didn't even take him in to arrest him. They took him in for questioning, and then he escaped. But the FBI apparently was already kind of on, like, looking into the case. So as soon as he escaped, they're like, well, he's guilty. So they started kind of being like, on the look for him and set out a, like, almost like a bolo for, like, descriptions and stuff. And he just happened to have very significant racial tattoos. If you are going to get tattoos, either make them nondescript or, you know... Don't make them racial. Make them hideable. Right? <laughs> like, so, and then they also announced that he really, like, he went to blood banks in between, like, doing these bank robberies and stuff, because that was another easy way to get fast cash. So, when he was caught, finally, in Florida, it's because the, like, blood bank operator noticed his tattoos, and was like, hey, this looks familiar, and I've, reported him. I've seen it on the news. It's just, it's crazy. Which brings us to, like, be aware, know what's going on. The news sucks, but sometimes it has good spots. Be on the lookout for bad guys. Yeah. But Trust I also, your gut, people. That too. Also, I wanted to mention that there is actually a Criminal Minds episode about this. It is in season one. Um, uh, I think it was like episode 10 or something like that. But I love Criminal Minds personally. I'll watch the whole season just for this. Yes, I've definitely watching it. <laughs> definitely check it out. We will have it linked. We have. All of our socials and whatnot. We have Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. So we will have that linked for you. We are trying to get a blog put up. So we can post pictures of all these creeps for you as well. Um, but yeah. Please follow along. Leave a review for us. And thanks for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed your cocktails and crime. Hello everyone. We have decided that this episode was a little shorter than we would initially like it to be. So we have decided to include some outtakes from recording our first two episodes. We had a lot of fun during this process and at one point slowly started losing it and it really made some funny outtakes for us. We really hope you're enjoying what you're listening to and hearing. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review follow us on all of our socials and if you have any suggestions whether it's about the podcast in general or some cases that you would like us to do we do have our email it's tequila she wrote at gmail.com send us an email and again thank you and we hope you enjoy hello my name is trish i am originally from ohio 
I moved down here to good old Mobile, Alabama about nine years ago. Sir. <laughs> Hi, I am so you're Sloan. on the internal. Oh, damn. You know, on the- oh, you go. The moment that I grabbed the mic, it was all (laughs) downhill from there. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Trish, your bartender for today. And I'm Sloane, your crime tender for today. So, buckle up, grab your cocktail, and... Oh my god, I messed it up! (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to another episode of Tequila She Wrote. A podcast about crime. Fuck! (laughs) If you want to see this drink made in person, you can watch it on our TikTok, uh, Tequila She Wrote. Or you can go to our Instagram. Instagram. I cannot say. <laughs> I hate what the people want to hear. Right here. Right here. I appreciate my people. My crime. My crime podcast people so much more. Like this. This. All this hard work was not. Was not put out there. Just trying to drink and talk about crime. Okay. That's all we wanted to do. But here we are. <laughs> here I am having to use my brain and think. Okay. It's not supposed to be this hard. <laughs> It's not. <laughs>